Welcome to the FieldLink Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Smith. In this episode, we travel to Washington, D.C. to sit down with lawmakers from across our country as we talk about the Farm Bill and other major legislation that's being proposed that could impact growers today. Also joining us is Sean McCarty. Sean is the Director of Government Affairs for Helena. Sean's going to help us break down some of the comments and feedback from several senators, congresswomen and men from across our nation, as well as administrators. Stay tuned for this special episode of FieldLink. Joining me today here on this special episode of FieldLink is Sean McCarty. Sean is the Director of Government Affairs here at Helena in Memphis. Sean, welcome back to Memphis from D.C. It was quite a crazy time out there <laughs> Good this to week. see you again. Different yeah. time zone, same group. There we go. Hey, we're uh, here in Memphis today. Uh, we've spent the last week out there. I was with the uh, National uh, Association of Farm Broadcasters. You were out boots on the ground working with a lot of our entities out there, working Congress, working a lot of those senators to better understand what's going on in the industry. Uh, Sean, tell us a little bit about some of the things that you were working on this past week. Yeah, Bill, uh, you know, for Helena, uh, I represent our uh, government advocacy uh, efforts, and, and my department does, does all we can to protect the interests of, of not only Helena, uh, but our customers uh, at the federal level and at the state level. And so uh, that involves tra- traveling around to, to all of our state capitals and uh, meeting with folks in the states, but also handling efforts at a national level. And so this past week, uh, there, were, there were a lot of folks in town, uh, a variety of different events going on. Uh, part of my week was spent with the, uh, with the fertilizer mm-hmm. folks. Uh, addressing some of the fertilizer issues that are going on right now and some of the challenges that we've seen over the past few years and how they will fit into the upcoming farm bill. Uh, And then the other part of the week was working on pesticide issues um, and some of the non-pesticide issues on active ingredients that we use and ensuring that whether those are involved in the farm bill or elsewhere, that, uh, that we come at them from a common sense approach and the voices are heard of, of the growers and, and, uh, the parts of the country that don't exist in some of these areas where uh, folks just don't see pesticides up front. You bet. And certainly a lot of policy taking place here. Um, you know, lots of discussions, lots of hearings going on. Um, you know, uh, Sean, we're going to dive right into a first episode uh, here. We had a segment. Uh, I was able to sit down with, uh, along with several other broadcasters, several folks this week. Pete Buttigieg was there, uh, certainly uh, our Secretary of Transportation. And uh, we talked about a lot of things. Uh, transportation logistics is really critical. Let's take a second here and listen to what Pete Buttigieg has to say. So let me start by talking about what we're doing. Then I'm going to talk about what I'd like to see Congress do. So in terms of what we're doing, from day one, we have stepped up safety audits that were slowed down or withdrawn under the last administration because we think it's very important to look over the shoulders of these freight railroad companies and make sure they're compliant. Since what happened in East Palestine, we have done uh, additional supplemental inspections and safety advisories related to uh, things like wayside defect detectors or hot box detectors. Those are devices that can sense temperature anomalies in the wheels as they pass by, uh, hazardous materials and how they're handled, and other things that we, we think deserve special attention right now. But I'll say that our hand would be a lot stronger if Congress would strengthen it. And I'll give you an example. Right now, even if we find an egregious hazardous material-related violation by a railroad resulting in a fatality, the most we can assess by way of a penalty is in the neighborhood of $250,000. And if you're a multi-billion dollar corporation like a Norfolk Southern, in my view, that's not enough to really get your attention. 
That cap is set by Congress. But there is legislation right now, bipartisan legislation, uh, co-sponsored, among others, by both the Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown and the Republican Senator J.D. Vance from Ohio, which would change that and raise it to a level that would get their attention, in addition to a number of other concrete improvements uh, that, that would make our railroad safer. The adoption of tank cars, stronger tank cars, a standard called DOT-117, uh, was set by rule to be done by 2025, and then was, uh, there was an intervention by Congress, and that got slowed down. Uh, one of many cases where uh, railroad regulations have either been blocked or watered down in recent years, I think we ought to be doing the reverse. Make them tougher, not weaker. Um, and I think there's a real moment here because America's eyes have been opened to the frequency that these uh, rail disasters are happening. If you look at the overall pattern, the reason that we've been able to see them uh, at a lower level than they were uh, in the year 2000 or, or in the year 1980, when there were more than 10 derailments per day in America, is enforcement and regulation. I think to go the rest of the way and to deal with the still very high number that we have now, including on average more than one derailment every single day in America, is to follow through and hold the line, even knowing that there is a very powerful freight railroad industry that has often gotten its way in this town. Uh, there are indications that this bipartisan legislation I mentioned could move in Congress as early as the next few weeks. And we would enthusiastically support progress on that because that, again, would strengthen our hand. But with the tools that we have, we're going to do everything we can. So, John, uh, lots happening there with uh, uh, the secretary talking about safety, clearly catching a lot of headlines, concerns in supply chain there for all of us. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, around some of those regulations that they're considering? Well, I think, you know, Bill, as you, as you look back, some of these things are, are efforts that have been worked on across administrations. And oftentimes, you know, it's, it's which administration chooses to, to really hit the go button versus kick the can down the road. Um, they open things up for comment. They have discussions. Uh, the secretary mentioned working with Congress and trying to get a, a bipartisan uh, uh, initiative launched. It really comes down to what do they think is achievable? And if it's too extreme one way or the other, they know that they can't pass it. Uh, usually the recency of events like in East Palestine um, and some of the other uh, derailments that, that seem to occur shortly thereafter, uh, are those incidences occurring more frequently? Uh, or like many things, are we just paying attention more? and they're grabbing headlines more. Right. I'm not here to say one way or the other, but what it does is it puts a lot of attention on it. And so if you wanna say striking while the iron is hot, that's what the secretary's trying to do. Uh, when you get into the details and how it works, obviously they feel comfortable enough to, to say and, and name drop certain companies and say, hey, Correct, look, you know, yeah. this is where we're coming after. Um, and there's been a lot of attention from this administration overall on um, larger corporations and larger businesses, consolidation in industries, ag in particular has been mentioned yep. uh, even in the past presidential elections about uh, what's happening. So there's a lot of attention on large companies. And so from a regulatory standpoint, it just puts more pressure uh, on businesses like Hella and others mm -hmm. to ensure that, look, we're not, we're not opposed to safety. Quite frankly, we're doing more than we've ever done from a safety standpoint. Uh, but we also have to make sure that when we lay these things out here, they're achievable and, and going back to the common sense thing, that they make sense in the real world. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, the timing is right to probably have these conversations, and, and you're spot on. There's been, I, I heard a, a report this morning on average, there's about three derailments every day. Um, and, but we always don't hear about them, do we? Nope. Only when they're really, really bad. And there, unfortunately, has been a few rough ones here recently. Well, and with, with social media and, and uh, everybody paying attention probably more than they ever have, we see these things more. Um, sure. said, that's not to say that they're not occurring more, but the public's awareness and the desire to know what's going on and to seek information has, has really reached a fever pitch. And that cuts both ways. Uh, you would say that in some ways the public is more informed than ever before. Sure. Uh, at the same time, <laughs> we're probably more polarized than ever before. Yep, that definitely true. And you know that one of the other areas that uh, the secretary visited about uh, at our session was talking about infrastructure as it relates to bridges. And clearly, if you're in agriculture, there's there's waterways everywhere. There, there's bridges everywhere, and many of these bridges are frankly getting old. Let's listen to the secretary talk a little bit about the bridges initiative. Yeah, so uh, we're certainly sympathetic to, to the concerns faced by uh, anybody who encounters those load limits. But the load limits are there for safety, and so our view is that the best way to solve that is not to water down the, the the safety regulations. It's to strengthen the roads themselves, and that's why we have uh, unprecedented funding going not only to the uh, examples I, I shared earlier uh, uh, about, for example, bridges that succeed in a competitive program, but just formula dollars going out to the states for their state transportation improvement plans so that they can do the <clears throat> bread and butter work of, of making sure the uh, the roads are in stronger shape. But yeah, when you have a road or certainly a bridge that has these load limits. That's going to disproportionately affect folks like dairy farmers and uh, and so many producers who are depending on the ability to haul those heavy loads. So clearly, uh, transportation logistics a big key uh, to this audience, obviously, and a, a big area with the infrastructure plan uh, that was recently passed. A lot of dollars out there. Absolutely, and and Helen has been uh, pretty active in that. Uh, whether that's the efforts at the at the federal level uh, or initiatives at the local level where uh, whether it's been letters or, or being in the capitals and, and offering vocal support for some of these initiatives to, to repair our, our roadways, roadways and, and bridges and, and waterways, uh, the impact they have on us as a business and our ability to get goods uh, to our customers, uh, the ability of our customers to get goods to the market. And, and, you know, in these rural areas also, you know, we live in these communities. And so it's not just the day-to-day business needs, but we've got kids on school buses. Right. And, and we've got family members traveling these roads and no one has any desire for them to be uh, less than, than acceptable. Correct. And so Helena has played an active role in that uh, to ensure that we're doing all we can. Yes, everything has a budget, and and we've got to be mindful of that, and there's got to be a pay-for for for many of these things. But I would say that as far as Helena goes, uh, food and infrastructure are about as top line as it gets from a priority standpoint. You know, Sean, last year uh, during as co- we were in COVID and coming out of COVID, supply chain was a huge uh, issue for everybody in the world, really, and, and, and especially here in agriculture in the United States. Uh, uh, obviously, with uh, the barges coming down the Mississippi, we had challenges there. 
And we learned, even here in Memphis, when when the I-40 bridge had some issues and it was shut down, uh, lots of issues there with supply chain as it relates to trucks. One of the uh, conversations taking place in this area is the reduction of speed. And I had a chance to ask the secretary about the reduction of speed in trucks, and, and that's a big issue coming out. And here's his response. Yeah, Bill Smith, uh, Bill Lane Podcast on Memphis. Uh, the Federal uh, Motor Carrier Safety Administration has promised a speed limit rule for heavy duty trucks to be reduced. Hmm. Have we landed on a consensus of what that speed limit will be this year? I'll have to get back to you on the on the status of that process because I know they're going through a process that includes uh, a lot of feedback and a lot of input. And everything FMCSA does is driven by a lot of data and a lot of stakeholder involvement. Um, so I, I want to make sure I give you the get you the best information. But we'll follow up, AC, and and uh, make sure we get that to you. So obviously, uh, you know, uh, the secretary didn't have a specific answer. Are we going to reduce speed limit by five miles an hour, 10 miles an hour for heavy duty trucks there? Um, But I think it tells a bigger story. Uh, As you mentioned, Sean, earlier, a lot of these initiatives started maybe one, two administrations ago. And and now the time is right uh, for them to push this initiative through potentially. Yeah. I mean, some of these things take a a very long time. And and I will agree with the secretary there that uh, FMCSA in particular is an agency that relies heavily on data, uh, almost to a fault, as we saw with some some of the other programs that they've been working on with uh, crash predictability and, and the fitness of of uh, carriers. They got to that point where they, I believe, they they felt comfortable moving forward with this initiative that would reduce the speed of heavy duty trucks. It has been in the work for years, dating back administrations. Uh, the proposals and and I. Don't remember them off the top of my head. I think they were anywhere from 55 to 60 miles per hour, 64, 66, 68. Uh, but the idea being that you would have the technology on board that would limit the uh, the speed of those trucks. Uh, there, there are groups on all sides, uh, right. even within the trucking industry. There are groups that are advocates that believe it's probably for the best. And there are others that believe it's an infringement on their ability to do business, especially in areas where the speed limit itself is significantly higher than that. And, uh, you know, without them going on the record, the comments that if you lower our speed on highways where we're losing ground, it's going to lead the potential for increased speeding in lower speed zones to try and make up that time because time is money and uh, moving from ports and moving across country and trying to get in before uh, weather and all sorts of issues is going to cause some some additional problems. So their promise, uh, or, or uh, at least their their wish, was to come out with this uh, finalized uh, program by June of mm-hmm. 2023. Uh, it would not take effect until later, but they have stuck to that timeline. Uh, the last I heard. That said, we're in late April now, um, and I've not heard any indication on a number. And, and as you asked there uh, at the meeting, the secretary is still not comfortable coming out there and saying, which that doesn't necessarily surprise me. Right. Um, if they popped up in June and they said, here it is, 66 miles per hour, it wouldn't shock me. If they also kicked the can down the road a little bit and said, hey, we're still gathering information because I, I've been in the room and heard uh, very credible uh, very well-regarded organizations speak about the pros and cons eloquently. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so it wouldn't surprise me if they kicked it down the road and said, you know, we're still not sure exactly where to be. Uh, if you go to Europe, um, in some areas, they have a policy where you know trucks need to be in the right 
lane um, or, or the slow lane, as we might right. call it, and they're not supposed to be coming over into the fast lane, uh, that would present its own set of challenges. So it's not a perfect solution. Um, we understand the intent and what they're trying to do for driver safety. Obviously, there's going to be some downsides, so it remains to be seen. Yep. A lot to happen there in that specific area. Um, and, and it was a really good session uh, with the secretary. He was very transparent, uh, uh, very well uh, spoken uh, throughout our session there. And then we had the opportunity to visit with Robert Bonney. Uh, he is the undersecretary uh, for farm production and conservation uh, idea with in the risk management agency. Um, and, and, and he had some really interesting things to talk about. And uh, here's uh, Robert Bunny talking a little bit about conservation and, and volunteerism. What we're essentially asking folks to do is adopt, voluntarily adopt conservation practices. Regulatory, re- regulatory approaches aren't very good at getting people to, I mean, you know, you, you're not going to adapt soil health practices at the, at the end of a gun barrel. And so the, the, the approach here, we think the voluntary approach is absolutely the right one. But we need the data to be able to, to prove this, to demonstrate that, it's, um, that, that this approach can work. So we're making big investments both with resources in the Inflation Reduction Act and outside to make sure that we can prove this up, that we have better numbers on soil carbon, that we have better numbers on methane, better numbers on nitrous oxide emissions. And we think if we can do that, I mean, right now, the, the, um, um, you know, if you think back, back a decade or more ago, everybody assumed it was going to be cap and trade. That's how we were going to do climate change. We're all trying to figure out what the rules are. The playing field is way more open right now. And we have an opportunity here to work in partnership with agriculture and forestry to develop things that will work for the climate and work for producers. Data is going to be critical, both to provide the information that producers need, but also to, to be able to look the public in the eye and look Congress in the eye and say, hey, these resources are providing real results. Yeah, I think that was a really good comment, especially at the end there from Robert Bonney, who, who has been uh, with the agency for quite some time, several different uh, uh, presidencies and so forth. But talking about the importance of data, that's critical uh, to, to all of these policies. Yeah, I think that you know, that's the tricky thing with, with USDA is they're so reliant on accurate data. And uh, on our side of things, and, and, and especially our, our grower customers, the pressure is to, to make sure that you submit accurate data. Um, and, and I can understand why sometimes there's, there's concern about where that data goes and how it's being used or misused. Uh, but as, as you heard from Dr. Bonnie, and um, uh, I think you, you heard from Hubert over at, the, uh, at NAS, right. yep. you know, the importance is if, if you don't submit accurate data when it comes down to crop insurance, uh, or any other programs that are, are being put on by USDA, if the data we do, we submit is not accurate, then payments and and other assumptions by the agency are, are going to be inaccurate. And so there is there, there's a lot of, of reliance on data. Uh, Dr. Bonnie's been there for for a long time uh, and advised uh, the Obama administration and, and now the Biden administration. Uh, the the emphasis on voluntary conservation practices uh, is is critical to the ag industry um, and USDA and other agencies are, are a bit shorthanded. And so, uh, you know, to ensure that we're doing all we can, we, we have to rely on some of these conservation practices being done voluntarily and, and work in conjunction of public private partnerships to ensure that funding is there to incentivize these folks, but mandating and, and regulating uh, is not necessarily the answer. And, and there's some other uh, opportunities moving forward. I think one of the things that we've looked at here recently with the upcoming farm bill is 
you know, can we take some of our CCAs, you know, Helena and, and a number of our fellow uh, retailers and distributors and other agronomists out there uh, have their certified crop advisor certifications and other certifications, uh, but they are not qualified by default as technical service providers within USDA's uh, programs. Mm-hmm. And those folks that are writing nutrient management plans uh, for growers to ensure that they're doing everything from a fertility and manure standpoint, uh, you know, they're down to, I think, just a little over a thousand folks across the country. Uh, So there is an initiative that that we've discussed about, hey, you know, the CCA exam, it might trump the SAT, ACT, LSAT. I mean, it's a tough one, right? Yeah, for folks who have taken the CCA exam, they'll tell you that might be the hardest exam they've ever taken. Uh, Is there there a way that we might be able to get CCAs to either automatically or maybe by just application process qualify as a technical service provider within USDA and fund that program? to ensure that those folks are also available to write these nutrient management plans so that we have more access, so that our growers have more access to folks who are able to write these plans. Um, and it's not just those that have access to their NRCS folks or, or people that can afford to pay the premium to go out there and find somebody. So there's an efficiency to be gained there. Right. Um, and, but again, that's that's reliant on the USDA working uh, with individuals and, and you know, uh, and business. Well, I think you bring up a great point because you know, we've, we we at Helen have put a huge investment into that CCA certification uh, for many, many of our people. And, and, and in addition to that, our investment in agrointelligence, to capturing this data, to managing that data, we've got a pretty good platform in front of us to help support some of these conservation initiatives. And, and that's where you see the government takes advantage of those private opportunities. Um, all the way up to Homeland Security. Correct. Uh, and you find out when, you know, and we've got a debt ceiling crisis now, but when you find out when you get into these sequestrations and you find out who's not being paid and who is being paid because you find out, well, what's being outsourced? And where is the government utilizing non-governmental employees to be as efficient as possible? And and we're no different. Yeah, it's a, it's an exciting time. A great opportunity, really, to do the right thing. Uh, our, our investments that Helen has made over 20-some years ago into the data and, of course, into our people – could certainly pay off uh, exponentially over over the next several years. Absolutely. Okay, uh, uh, Sean, let's move on. Uh, Senator uh, uh, out of Arkansas, Republican, uh, Senate Agriculture Committee Ranking Member uh, Boozman, uh, he uh, had some things to talk a little bit about around uh, the farm bill, uh, as well as being a safety net. What we're doing is is running around the country. I've, I've been to several states already. I've got seven, 16 or 17 on the books in the next couple months. Again, listening to producers, trying to figure out what they want. And I'll tell you what I hear at the top of the, the list as I go around and visit with farmers, and that's all about making sure that the safety nets are in place. Uh, making sure that the risk management tools that they need uh, are there. We're in an interesting time right now. We have a generational high uh, inflation. Uh, We've got uh, generational high uh, mortgage, not mortgage, interest rates. So there's a lot of angst out in the farm community, as you all know. And they're going to need those risk management tools uh, so that they have the, the... uh, you know, the comfort in themselves that they can go forward, but also they're going to need them with the shakiness of the banking institutions right now and the increased regulation. They're going to need those risk management tools as they go to their bankers and get the loans that they need going forward. 
uh, it's not only a safety net for farmers, but it's a safety net for rural America. So uh, certainly the senator talking about, you know, the farm bill being a safety net, a security place. Certainly we have a lot of financial challenges in the country and around the world, but uh, the farm bill certainly being a, a safety net for many producers. Yeah. You know, when you look at, at the way crop insurance is perceived outside of the ag industry, uh, sometimes it, it falls under that, oh, well, that's that's farmer subsidies. Right. And, you know, farm subsidies. And, and I think that's a bit of a misnomer uh, because really that's allowing them the financial freedom to operate. Uh, and I think we've we've discussed before that, that, you know, farmer income is a net loser without off farm income, right? Most of these farmers, you know, that, that's a tough to balance the years, the good years and the bad years. Crop insurance is what allows them to to stay sustainable in the truest sense, and that is to keep the farm operating and profitable. From a national security standpoint, that's paramount. Right. And so, crop insurance has, uh, you know, the, the percentage of the farm bill uh, has deteriorated. Mm-hmm. Uh, the largest chunk of that, you know, over over eighty percent of that is going to be. Uh, supplemental nutrition. Uh, and I mentioned earlier the debt ceiling, and that's that's kind of the elephant in the room right now. Right. Uh, as I meet with, with members of Congress, and, and we want to discuss priorities for the farm bill, but it's hard to understand just how, what, what your, your, I guess, your parameters um, and your limits will be for the farm bill discussion, because we don't understand from a funding standpoint how much of a haircut we're going to take. Right. Uh, the, the debt ceiling, you know, by most accounts, you know, we have enough money to pay our bills through early June. Originally, we thought we'd get a little bit further than that. I think uh, tax receipts were lower than anticipated. And so uh, if we don't figure that out, or depending on what the solution is, and, and leadership is working on that, but we, we can't truly have a, a an honest discussion about what the farm bill is really going to look like until we get through the debt ceiling. But, and, and this isn't a crystal ball, ag is, is going to be on the defensive. We do not anticipate any growth right. of, of that funding. It's really just defense. It's really just don't cut any more. And crop insurance is, is going to be top of the list for us yep. um, as an ag industry and for Helena. And the importance it is uh, on on securing the the long term health of our customers. Uh, so no matter what state you're in, and, and uh, Senator Bozeman, you know, mentioned that I was at his first hearing that he had at, at Arkansas State in Jonesboro, uh, and, and they went up to Michigan State and met with uh, the, the the chair, uh, Senator Stabenow's uh, home state up there, and they, right. they're hearing it from everybody. Right. Uh, the crop may change a little bit, the accent may change a little bit, but the priority is still the same from a national security standpoint to keep family farms operating and to keep food production in this country, uh, crop insurance, the, the conversation starts there. You know, Sean, one of the neat things that I picked up, you know, and, and, and you're in the mix every day. This is what you do, but uh, I don't. Uh, but one of the neat things to, that I experienced this week was to watch both, uh, you know, senators and congresspeople, uh, men, women, whatever it may be, on either side of the aisle, be pretty consistent uh, as it relates to agriculture, and, their, and I don't want to just say they're talking points, but I think the spirit's all driven right for the most part. Ag is a, a special committee and a special industry. I'm not going to sit here and say that they always agree on everything. Sure. But if you're looking for a committee, House and Senate, where both sides of the aisle are willing to come to the middle, ag is where it's at. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that that most people on that committee understand that that food and clothing uh, are not a a red or a blue R D urban world. It doesn't matter. Right. We all eat. We all need clothes. We we all want to protect the future uh, of ourselves and our children and our children's children. And so th- that committee is it's it's a great committee. Most of the folks on on those committees are great to work with. You do see it, and I think somebody else said this uh, in a prior meeting I had, that they were shocked that uh, members from different parties got along so well. Right. And, uh, yeah, we are, we're more split and more divided. Uh, we have fewer moderates than ever before, but there's still a lot of agreement on some core sure. principles up there, and there are still some friendships up there. Um, and, and ag is one of the ones where you can still see it out in the open as opposed to some of the other ones where – it's a bit more extreme. Well, I, I completely agree with you. I had the opportunity to see uh, Senator Deputy uh, Stanbo uh, out of Michigan and Congressman Glenn Thompson, GT, uh, who is the uh, uh, he is the House Ag Committee chair. So you got the Senate chair, you got the House chair. They were they were like high fiving each other. I mean, they were they were like brother and sister, uh, uh, just very conversational and open and hugging and and. I, you don't always see that on the general media, and it was very pleasing as, as a taxpayer, as a citizen, to see, you know, folks that eh, they don't see eye to eye on everything, but they stacked hands on a lot of the important stuff. No, and if you take, you know, the former chair on the House Ag side, now ranking member Scott from Georgia. Georgia's mm-hmm. a great ag state. They know that ag is important. Uh, Chairman Thompson from Pennsylvania. Uh, this is his first go around as, as chair of the ag committee yep. and a lot of pressure uh, to, to write a farm bill, especially with uh, the, the financial situation as it is. Right. Um, Senator Bozeman ha- has been through this process. He was not chair last farm bill. That was Senator Roberts from Kansas. Um, but a but a long time uh, proponent of ag and from a great ag state in Arkansas. And then uh, Chairman Stabenow. And, and right. she is retiring. So yeah. she is leaving. Um, and as opposed to, to some people thinking, okay, well, you know, you're one foot out the door, you're not as engaged, quite the opposite. Most of these folks mm-hmm. feel like this is a lasting legacy and they want to ensure that it is done before they leave office and done the right way because their name's written all over it. So all four of those folks have a pretty good relationship with each other because they are right. all working toward a common goal and, and the benefit of having supplemental nutrition and the, the farm and ag programs tied together is we know we're going to get bipartisan support. Right. Uh, there, there have always been folks that have said, well, what if we split them out? And then we can get more of our priorities tucked into it. Mm. Uh, most groups understand that keeping them tied together is what allows that cohesiveness and that bipartisanship. Well, and to your point, you know, if you pull uh, nutrition out of the farm bill, you just lost a lot of urban senators that could really care less for, you know, uh, probably 80, 90% of what we're even talking about today. And, and I mean, on, on the rural uh, side of things, the, the same thing. And, and uh, Chairman Thompson will tell you, as a as a young adult, uh, he was a recipient of supplement nutrition. Mm-hmm. And, and everyone, urban or rural, right. probably knows somebody or knows somebody who knows somebody yep. who is or was a recipient. And so... Uh, yeah, there's going to be uh, disagreements over work requirements for nutrition. 
There's going to be disagreements over uh, the use of, of pesticides and subsidizing farmers. There's going to be these disagreements, but the overall goal is the same, and that is to make sure that people do not go hungry and that we have food in this country. Yeah, that's a good good goal for all of us, obviously. You know, kind of carrying on that journey here, Congressman Abigail Spanberger from Virginia. She's a Democrat, and I believe this is her first term. First, from, first farm bill. First farm bill. Okay, first farm you know, I don't know her that well. Had the opportunity to chat with her and listen to her a little bit. Neat person, excellent background, CIA. Oh yeah. This this person, she's a deep thinker, and I'll never forget what she said. Uh, she was very um, conversational about it, but she's like, I like to approach these bills like I did when I was with the CIA. It's about the facts. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, she perked a lot of ears up. And so let's listen to the Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger from Virginia. Uh, on the line of the people that you'll be hearing from, there's a, a, a couple of us who are on the Agriculture Committee and also on the House Intelligence Committee. Um, and so uh, are focused together on issues related to protecting, supporting, uh, being partners with American Ag, and then also recognizing some heightened national security risks that may exist um, when we see con control of American farmland um, uh, uh, going to foreign owners. There's a couple a couple elements to that. Uh, there's the actual, are there swaths of American farmland that are being purchased that might be in uh, geographically interesting or sensitive places, right? Like that's one bucket near military installations, near uh, sensitive government-related properties where a foreign government comes in and buys that land. Uh, that's one element of a area of concern. The other area of an element of concern is what happens when you know, bit by bit or acre by acre or farm by farm, outside foreign entities are purchasing the land that we need to feed our country or the land that we need to kind of be an integral part of our communities and drivers of rural economy. Uh, and, and those are, at times, two separate discussions. The conversations that are ongoing, and we, we as you mentioned, have introduced legislation to this point, um, I think the conversations are um, happening at a steady pace, which I think is important because we certainly don't want to just say, you know, all foreign purchase of American land is bad, right? Like painting that with a broad brush can be problematic. Um, but certainly looking at the two different elements of the challenge we're facing Certainly, farmland near sensitive government installations, you know, that's something that requires a bit more urgency in how we address it. But then overall looking at the strategy of, you know, what are ways that, you know, a producer who might be looking to sell their farm um, and the, the, you know, the buyer, their economic interests are to sell to the first, the person who wants to buy for the best price. Well, what else exists as an option if that producer does want to sell to the next generation farmer, you know, down the street who just can't put up that level of capital? Like, is it a capital investment issue? Is it a, you know, a, this is what this, the, the landowner who's selling is faced with and the decision they're making. So this gets into kind of larger scale um, discussions of not just are there national security implications, yes or no, or it's very nuanced, but then also, if our goal is to say it's it's optimal 
when an American farmer continues farming American land, um, are there things that we could be doing to help first generation or um, you know new farmers be able to make the investments in that land that otherwise you know the the capital might only exist with you know insert whatever you know foreign owned entity. So uh, clearly, the congresswoman really, uh, I'm, again, she really understands security, national security. She's probably one of the top thought leaders on the committee, I would assume, that has that kind of background to really, you know, really understand that. Yeah, no, uh, extremely impressive and and also intimidating, you know, for anybody <laughs> that ever watched, uh, if you ever watched Homeland and, and you got Carrie Mathis and, you know, somebody that's just, you know, three steps ahead of you. Um, that makes you second guess yourself. Uh, that that's her, um, and, and she has. She's been a uh, a strong proponent of ag. Uh, yes, there have been initiatives coming from the Democratic side of the aisle that sometimes uh, many ag groups are concerned with. But she has. Uh, she's looked out for our interests, and uh, even going back to last Congress, she was uh, listed on a letter that, that went into the EPA that said, "Hey, slow down on all these." Pesticides, pesticide restrictions and bans, uh, because we're, we're losing tools. There's court decisions. There's all the, there's trade issues, and and farmers need tools, and we need to trust the science and not make uh, emotional or political decisions. And so, uh, a, a good advocate for ag, um, you can tell by by what she went over. Uh, not only uh, you know from a, a national security standpoint. But you know, from a, just an overall trade standpoint, mm-hmm. the impact of some of this foreign ag ownership, and it is probably the most widespread issue that we're seeing across this country right now. Okay. So there are bills uh, being uh, tossed about in D.C., and there are bills in dozens of states across the country, and they all have different flavors, uh, ultimately trying to get at the same same common issue which is other countries owning land right sometimes even just leasing land but owning land in the united states and while many of them have started to narrow down their focus to uh whatever they will call them adversarial countries or hostile countries sure russia china north korea uh, syria venezuela cuba some of them are are a little bit more broad Mm -hmm. and you know, we understand the intent is to protect national security. Like she said, if 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 there's a facility going up that's just happens to be next to a a site of national security concerns, uh, we understand. Um, at, and and if there's countries that are purchasing ag land, uh, using our resources, growing that food, and then shipping that food back to their country, and they're just using our property to to harvest that food. We understand that, but but there's also a, a lot of individuals and a lot of companies and a lot of trade partners internationally that we have agreements with, and there's a lot of farmers and groups that invest and own land in other countries. That's right, and that's where we've got to be very cautious. Uh, you know, thinking back to your education and, and learning about physics, that there's for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. We've got to be very cautious with the approach we take in this protectionist type environment. Um, and I, I find it somewhat interesting because we, we are, we, we've, we've seen this really uh, large effort and, and it's not just Republican or Democrat. If you look at the state bill being uh, initiated in California, it's a Democratic lead. Uh, she mentioned her concerns over it. Uh, 
at the same time, when we were experiencing all these supply chain struggles, there was actually conversations about repealing the Jones Act. Mm-hmm. The Jones Act goes back 100 years, and it's an anti-espionage uh, right. measure that was taken to prevent foreign adversarial countries from operating ships in American waters. So today, a foreign-owned, a foreign-flagged ship cannot sail from a U.S. port to a U.S. port. They can leave or they can come, but they can't go port to port. Well, when we couldn't get barges and we were struggling to get things moved, there were discussions about, hey, do we need to repeal the Jones Act and allow some of our partners who are from other countries to go port to port so that we can get our goods to where they need to go? A to B, yeah. So we're having that conversation. And yet at the same time, we're having conversations about restricting investment and ownership of land. Um it tells you how quickly that conversation conversation can shift. Right. Um, but it is a concern. There are bills that will pass, uh, whether that's um, in, in Texas, in Florida. Uh, there are states where, where these types of bills will pass. I don't know that it will, will pass at the federal level. Um, but you can tell the appetite is there. There's a lot of concern. The, the giant balloon flying over the country did not help the issue. Right. Um, right. So we'll see where it goes. But it... it no different than some of the previous things we've talked about. It all comes back to national security and food security and, and COVID and some of the trade stuff and, and the crisis in in, uh, in Ukraine with, with Russia. All of these things have added up to get us to where we are today. Well, definitely a great interview with uh, the congresswoman uh, from Virginia. And, you know, the one thing that we didn't talk about, unique thing, her situation – her, her district really is just outside of D.C., yep. so you know half of her constituents are very much urban, and then head over a pass and boom, uh, very rural as well. She she is one of those ones that you watch every election. You know, members of the House are running every two years. Actually, they're running as soon as they get elected. Exactly. As soon as they get elected, they're, they're picking the phone up and they're asking for contributions and, and they're running again. But uh, she is one of those districts that you watch because it is it's a very close district. Uh, the makeup has has urban or, or suburban constituents, but also sure. rural constituents. And so that's why she knows that she's got to look out for the interests of a, a very large spectrum of individuals versus just a rural district or just an urban district. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Hey, then we're going to move further west. We've got Senator Roger Marshall from Kansas. He's a Republican, uh, certainly a, a strong voice for agriculture. Um, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about uh, methane gases and some of the challenges that they're seeing and, and some of the solutions in Kansas. So let's just talk about methane just for a second. Just for a second. So a third of methane production comes from uh, wetlands. So I'm surrounded by Cheyenne Bottoms and Quivira Refuge. Love them, need to protect them, um, all those things. Uh, A third of it comes from the oil and gas industry. Look, we need to embrace that. And I think innovation can and will solve that challenge. 20% of methane comes from uh, city dumps. How much does ag contribute to? If you would listen to the national media and to the climate demigods, agriculture must be responsible for, what do you think, 90% of methane? We're responsible for 10%. 10%. And let's work on it. All across the state, I see uh, operations taking uh, their waste and, and catching that methane gas. City of Dodge doing the same thing with their water system. We need urban centers helping us. There should not be a drop of water leaves Kansas that's not used again. All of the waste should be treated capturing that methane gas as well. Let's do it. How can we impact that city dump as well? We need urban America involved with this rather than just pointing the finger at agriculture. Trust me, my kids inherit 
inheritance will be land, not a lot of money. Okay, so uh, clearly the senator's pretty passionate about methane. Senator Marshall is, is one of those that, from the moment he stepped into office, and I think back to uh, his his first term in the U.S. House of Representatives, he came out to our facility in Garden City, Kansas, mm-hmm. and uh, was fully engaged. And not that when they come out to our locations, they're not but some of them, it's a little bit more of I'm coming out, I'm doing a site visit, I'm, I'm touring with people, I'm, I'm being seen. He was one of those individuals that really came out and wanted to learn. And, and we brought out our maps, our agri-intelligence maps, and showed him what we were doing from a precision ag standpoint. Uh, and, and he really got on the fast track. Uh, as I mentioned, yeah, the, the senator that headed up the ag committee uh, last farm bill was Pat Roberts from Kansas. Right. And, and the senator retired. And Senator Marshall, now Senator Marshall, uh, stepped into that seat. So he went from uh, being in the private sector, I believe he's a, a vet by trade, yeah, doctor, to, to, yeah. the, uh, to the House, to the Senate, and, um, and continues to be outspoken in his advocacy for agriculture. So somebody that we know stands behind us um, and is going to be educated, is not just going to throw things out there, um, you know, at the same time. One of those that we've got to make sure that we stay engaged with, because when you have somebody who becomes the the figurehead, the one that everybody's listening to hear what they say, mm-hmm. kind of like we talked about representing constituents, he's talking about the energy and, and gas sector. He's talking about the livestock sector. He's right. talking about the pesticide sector. He's talking about all of those. And while we are all in unison 90 to 95% of the time, there are going to be those differences. So uh, happy to have him there and, and what he's doing and, and his staff because we need we need those advocates up there. Yep, yep, need that strong voice. Hey, he continues on talking about kind of an important topic. You know, I, I call this kind of the tug of war internally that maybe us as citizens don't always hear about. But let's listen to uh, the Senate, Senator Marshall from Kansas talk about the USDA versus the EPA. Right. So there's three carbon sinks out there, right? Three big carbon sinks, uh, the ocean, trees, and soil. So if you want me to continue to do no-deal farm on our ranch, then we need these chemicals to do that. And I just don't think that many people at the EPA understand that. that sometimes you have to trade one for another and see which is the maximum benefit. So that's what we need to be sharing is that part of the story. One of my big frustrations up here is that the USDA scientists are not getting the respect that they deserve, uh, that the EPA is not listening to them, is not listening to our Secretary of Agriculture who's fighting for us. So we need that we need a loud voice in the Secretary of Agriculture Department fight that you know explaining to the EPA exactly what you're talking about. I don't think I'd expect a farmer to argue with the EBA, but we expect the USDA though to be arguing with this administration saying, slow down, be careful what you're wishing for here, or we'll be plowing up all this uh, soil sink that we've been having carbon set in the Marshall farm for 20 years. Great point. You know, kind of some insider look and views there, Sean. What's your perspective? Well I think uh you know, if you if I'm not sure how many people stopped midweek to uh, to watch this, but uh, another another event uh, in D.C. this week was the House Ag Committee hearing with EPA Administrator Michael Regan. Right, and uh, not that a lot was said from the administrator's part. Uh, he knew this was coming. The members of the House Ag Committee, particularly the Republican members, had been waiting for this opportunity to share their gripes and their frustrations with the EPA. And that was one of the things that came up in the uh, in the hearing was, hey, EPA, uh, why don't you listen to USDA? 
why is it that USDA has all this experience and all this work uh, being out in the field, working with, with folks, looking at, at what's happening out there, and yet when they present science or, or scientific arguments to you and other things, you, you tend to disregard them. I'm not going to say that that happens all the time or that that's the rule. Does it occur where agencies don't see eye to eye or don't talk? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see that that's where a frustration lies. And you can hear the passion in his voice. And, and it's shared by some of his counterparts on the House and Senate side that, you know, why aren't these agencies working together more often? Uh, we, we can even see that now with where we are with EPA on endangered species. You know, they now know that they have to work more closely with the Fish and Wildlife and the services folks to ensure that they're doing their consultations on the front end that historically they weren't doing. And so while they're all in DC and their, their leaders are all appointed by the president, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're always talking to each other and that all their varying arms uh, and departments within talk to each other. So it's a very real concern. Uh, You know, we say that we believe in the science that we want to trust the science and follow the science. Um, And when we meet with folks from USDA, uh, not that we always agree with everything that comes out, but we feel like that's the best agency up there that's at least trying to advocate uh, for ag. And so when there is this belief, rightly or wrongly, that information is being disregarded, yeah, you're going to have a gripe. EPA right. is a tough job. Yeah, uh, They are trying to they, – they, they believe, and most of the officials at the EPA believe that pesticides play a critical role in, in – food and vegetation management and food production. Uh, They also understand that pesticides by nature kill things. And so it's a tricky job to balance how you regulate a material that has such a benefit, but also if used improperly, such a risk. So it's not an easy job for EPA. Uh, We get it, but that does not mean that we don't hold you accountable. And I think that's what you saw there. Yeah, definitely. And a good call out and a good, uh, you know, piece of information, again, for uh, voters to really understand what's going on there. And it's not always the politicians involved. I mean, these are two agencies that, uh, and, and we heard earlier in the week that they're struggling too, just in headcounts. You know, they've got, you know, budgets to manage and people, they're having a heck of a time hiring people. Yeah. I mean, I think that if you go back and, and I believe the last time that, that we were on, we were talking about PREA, the Pesticide Registration Improvement Act, and our ability to raise the funding for the Office of Pesticide Programs. And, and that will allow them to hire, I think at the last count, they were maybe looking at hiring 40 new employees mm-hmm. in the Office of Pesticide Programs, which would allow us to get pesticides re-registered and reviewed, and also new ones approved. The challenge is, is they are still way below where they need to be from a staffing standpoint. Uh, 10 years ago, if they had 1,000, today they're under 600. Right. So there's nobody there to do that job. Uh, and that presents its own set of challenges. If, if there's not an individual there, and the individuals that are there are new hires, right. that quite frankly, industry is having to train because we have the experience. So uh, they've got their work cut out for them. They said, we're not always gonna like what the EPA does, but we also recognize that they are the body that we give the authority to for review of pesticides. Um, And and if we're gonna have them there, they need to be staffed to a certain extent. I I go back to the debt ceiling conversation. That's the big concern we have, right? So we got funding through in this past year, uh, but moving forward, if things have to take a haircut, that's one of the ones that will take a haircut. And so 
do we end up going right back to where we were? So we're doing more endangered species revisions. We've got more, more lawsuits occurring uh, that are putting more pressure on the EPA, and yet the staffing's just not there. It, you, know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that's going to slow things down. And right. when it comes to Helena's ability to provide the best agronomic tools out there and that fit our economic principles, uh, that, that's an issue. Yeah, definitely. Definitely a challenge there in that area. Uh, Sean, we're keep, keep chugging along here. We had the opportunity also to listen to a, a new congresswoman from the state of Florida. Uh, she's a Republican, Catherine Kamick. Um, she is also on the House Committee for Agriculture, as well as the House Committee on Energy and Commerce. And uh, really interesting, kind of kind of caught all of us off a little bit here, Sean. She brought up a point. Uh, she's getting ready to put together a bill and can possibly propose it here next week on critical minerals. Let's take a listen to the senator, or congressman, rather. For our producers, I am looking at the critical inputs like fertilizers. Next week, I'll be dropping a bill that will list phosphate and potash as critical minerals, which to date, they are not listed as such. When you look at facilities like Nutrien, which phosphate is in everything from our Diet Cokes to our cosmetics to, of course, animal feed, and it's a critical input for producers, you see that it's a little bit of a disconnect that it's not a, uh, a critical mineral. So we're excited for that legislation that will not only streamline some of the permitting hurdles that our, our folks face in, in mining, but it'll also end up driving down the cost for consumers at the end of the day, because by extension, our producers who utilize it will not have to pay as much. Definitely a, a, a very uh, energetic uh, new congresswoman from Florida, uh, tackling a pretty tough to- uh, topic there. Yeah, and this is one that, that was actually pursued last Congress as well, uh, really kind of a result of all the issues that we've seen. Again, COVID, uh, the Russia-Ukraine crisis, um, high tariffs and, and, and trade issues. Uh, you know, this is a bill that, and, and she mentioned it, you know, she's from Florida, and, and Florida has a, a strong uh, fertilizer presence in the domestic market. Uh and being aware of the impact that it's having of, of relying no different than energy on other countries and sometimes countries that are viewed as adversarial. And so there is a big push to support domestic production right. uh, to make sure that, that we have access and we are uh, not reliant on, on those tra- trade partners. Not that we necessarily want to get away from having foreign partners in, in, in the trade of fertilizer, but We've got reserves, and, and we've got uh, a fair amount of um, of macronutrients uh, within the U.S. borders that the permitting process is is lengthy, and there's a lot of red tape in it. And so, what this is going to do is, if we designate them as critical minerals, this would streamline that. And so, another effort that uh, probably wouldn't get passed as a standalone. Uh, but might be added into uh, a farm bill. Right. And so I think going back to Senator Marshall and some others, these are the types of things that kind of markers, hey, this is a priority for us. We, you know, we, we've talked about this before. Is the time right with a farm bill coming up that this is something that all sides can understand, especially given where we've been over the last three to four years, that will help uh, the, the American farmer and rancher uh, ensure that they have the materials that they need when – Things go sideways. Right. And I think that's a great point. And it goes really, in this case, beyond agriculture, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. So it certainly impacts all, all, all consumers across the board. 
Sean, uh, had the great opportunity to listen to, uh, as we talked about earlier, uh, uh, the senator from Michigan, uh, Debbie Stabenow. Uh, she's Democrat, uh, also the Senate Ag Committee chair. Uh, she talked about some of the importance as it relates to ad hoc uh, funding for the crop insurance program. Let's take a listen to the senator. In the, the rest, in terms of commodities, crop insurance, other areas, um, it's pretty much flat funding. And the challenge for us has been because of uh, the, the trade challenges, because of COVID, because of a number of things the last few years, we've put 90, almost $90 billion in ad hoc funding through appropriations into supporting agriculture. Uh, and we also have about this been uh, in the last year, I covered 2022 levels, we have about $18 billion in crop insurance indemnities for 2022. And so we want, in my mind, we, we need to make sure we strengthen crop insurance. We've got to address uh, making sure, even though prices are up now, I mean, prices are, are good, input costs are up. So we have to, to deal with all of that. But how do we support those um, uh, commodities that, that need us to be able to do something different? Um, not, it's not true for all of them. So there you have it uh, from, from, from the uh, senator of Michigan talking a little bit about some of that ad hoc funding. Yeah, and, and this is her, uh, I hesitate to say legacy, but uh, the chairwoman is, is retiring. She will not seek reelection. And so th this is going to be it for her. Uh, she has every intention of, of passing this farm bill and making sure that it looks how she wants it to mm -hmm. uh, with Democrats uh, retaining the majority in the Senate. Um, she is she is the last stop. She's the leader when it comes to the Senate version. And, and the Senate tends to be a bit of the cooler, right? It, it, you need a larger uh, group of, of, of bipartisanship to get something passed in the Senate. And so... Um, she's really going to be the key piece in this. And so meeting with her office, no, no matter what you're talking about, really is the starting point. And uh, an experienced woman uh, that, that has been through these things before, but will get her chance to put her fingerprints on this one. And so um, I think she comes at it from a right place. She's saying all the right things. Uh, moving forward, it, you know, the, the timing of it, it's due. Uh, the farm bill expires September 30th. Um, they are, from a leadership standpoint, they are sticking to that, that date. That date will get here quicker than when we realize uh, with the August recess um, and the debt ceiling really not resolved until possibly even June. Um, you know, I don't think a lot of folks are optimistic. Um, I think they're probably more realistic that it, it might get extended. But when it comes to leadership, they're going to tell you they're going to get it done on time because they want to stick to that. Right. Um, and you're not going to hear a whole lot of polarizing conversation coming out of someone uh, like the chairwoman um, or, or Senator Bozeman. You know, that the leadership uh, knows that they need to be kind of the, the, the base right there um, and, and try and toe the line uh, versus some of the, the ag committee members that might have certain priorities they want to see involved. So. Uh, certainly saying all the all the right things. Um, we'll see where we are. Well, and, and, and to tee that right up, uh, Congressman Glenn G.T. Thompson uh, kind of ties it up. He's, a, he's a, a Republican out of Pennsylvania. He, I believe he's also a dairy farmer, if I'm not mistaken. Well, now, he uh, he came up through the, uh, the, the medical industry, okay. I, I, I want to say, but um, grew up uh, grew up in the farm air, in the farm arena okay. um, and was was truly excited. I mean, this was a goal of his 
to get the chairman uh, role of mm-hmm. the House Ag Committee was something that he had worked on. And and I'll say this, and it's, it's not throwing shade at ag. Uh, there are a lot of individuals that want nothing to do with the Ag Committee. Um, right. And they might get placed on it so that they have a committee. Um, but there are those individuals. And generally, they're going to be folks that grew up on a farm, maybe even still farm, that ask for the Ag Committee. And Chairman Thompson's one of those that he wanted the Ag Committee. Had right. a chance to, to be with him. He was up, uh, we were up in, in his home state um, at an outing, and, and one of our branch managers and I met with him, and you could hear the passion that he had. And he comes at it from a very good place. Even within the, uh, the we were talking about the farm bill and the supplemental nutrition piece, you know, that's something that he was a recipient. He yep. he has no intention of, of making extreme, very polarized decisions on things like supplemental nutrition. So a great person to have in that role. Well, definitely uh, the congressman's also on the House Committee on Education and Workforce, very critical to everything that we do here at Helena and really across the whole nation. So listen listen to G.T. Thompson as he kind of, I guess, wraps things up for us. You know, the one thing that probably is our biggest challenge uh, is the clock. Uh, the fact that this current farm bill expires the end of September, but I am an eternal optimist and uh, leaning in on uh, 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 on getting this done. Uh, we, uh, we have a, an obligation to those hardworking families that provide us food, fiber, building materials, and energy resources. And quite frankly, uh, all, the, all families across the country uh, that re, um, you know, rely on us to, to have access to the nutrition, uh, have the, the economic impact that rural America provides, uh, the jobs, um, the, the just tremendous contributions we have to a better environment and a cleaner climate, because uh, those are all things that happen. And there you have it from uh, G.T. Thompson out of Pennsylvania, the congressman, really uh, kind of pointing out the clock is ticking. Absolutely. It's a, um, I said that the, the days will go by. And they will go by quickly. And uh, we were talking a bit offline beforehand that, you know, one of the challenges we have is if we can get it, if we can get a farm bill approved in this year, uh, that would be, uh, it, while optimistic, it would be great. Um, it will be tough to get many of your priorities outlined until we know kind of financially where the country is and what spending is going to look like. Uh, the more likely scenario is an extension and, and kicking it down the road, as, as they say, with all these measures into a, a later date in 2023 or into 2024. Uh, moving things into 2024 would allow us more time to work out the fine details, uh, to have some more lengthy conversations about initiatives that mm-hmm. all sides want to see um, included in this farm bill, especially things that maybe we tried to get in the last farm bill that people liked, but maybe there wasn't enough support or wasn't enough information. And we feel like five years later, okay, we're there. Uh, So it would allow more time for that. The challenge is 2024 is a presidential election year. Right. And when you start having or forcing uh, elected members to take stances on issues in an election year, we talked about Representative Spanberger, you know, when you get into a, a close district, Yep. or a close Senate race, people get very sensitive to having to take stances. And so pushing it into a into an election year brings in a completely different challenge, which is some of your ideas may get the boot. Even though you have more time to think them out, they may get the boot because controversial is probably a little bit of an aggressive term, but they're not as unanimously agreed upon. And so if you put somebody on the spot to take a stance on that, they may say, hey, look, 
this will stop the farm bill from moving. I don't want to take a stance on this. Kick it out. Right. Um, so it's kind of a, a contradiction because if you want to get things in, you almost need to rush it, uh, which is never a good thing. Um, so I, I said, I, I think that outside of, of the, the staff of the ag committees and, and the, the leaders themselves, I think most people think some sort of extension will occur. Um, but, you know, we've been proven wrong before with that. We didn't believe that the Pesticide Registration Improvement Act had had any chance of being passed last Congress. And, you know, the week of Christmas, you know, there it was. So right. uh, I guess I'll reserve and, and say, hey, you, you know, why not? Well, Sean, as we mentioned earlier in this episode, we talked about uh, uh, EPA uh, Regan being um, uh, up on on hill this week uh he had to do some testifying one of the things that uh, was certainly talked about and that's impacting agriculture as well as really all of us is uh, uh is wotus uh, what are your thoughts around wotus and wow what are we going to be looking at here yeah i mean i think the, the waters of the united states uh, you know death taxes and wotus uh you yeah. know it, it, the waters of the united states changes, whether that was under the Obama administration and the changes that they enacted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Trump administration came along and stripped that down uh, and, and, you know, put their own spin on it. And the new administration came in, the Biden administration came in and, and Administrator Regan said, you know, this will this will be some sort of compromise between the two. And more or less, it kind of goes back to the, the, the pre-Obama rule. Uh, you know, we, we've got a, a decision by the EPA that, that came out a little while ago that said, okay, this is how we're going to define what a a water of the United States is and, and what would be subject to federal permitting and the impact that has on farms and ranches, uh, on home builders, on uh, everybody. On and on, yeah. Um, you know, but at, at the same time, You've got, I think, 26 states now. I think there was a, a decision um, out of South Dakota that I think uh, put an injunction there and stopped it in 24 states. I think Texas and Idaho, I think, had their own separate ones. So you got 26 states right now that are operating under one rule, 24 states that are operating under a different rule. EPA feels like they, they kind of did what they wanted to do with their definition and you've got a uh, Supreme Court case going on right now with, with a, uh, a family out in Idaho that, depending on how that comes down, could turn the thing on its head. So I, the uncertainty has not gone away, um, which is what everybody has said is the issue, which is this, you know, is this a waterway? You know, is, is an area that actually flows but isn't near anything else not a waterway but is a puddle that doesn't flow, but it happens to be... 50 yards away from another waterway that does qualify. And what does that mean? So um, for businesses and for people, yeah, I mean, it it is. And and I know there are groups out there, especially the American Farm Bureau that are advocating um, daily, trying to ensure that they do all they can. But that those types of decisions by the EPA are are why the Ag Committee was so eager to get Administrator Regan up there, uh, whether it was WOTUS, whether it was the cancellation of pesticides such as chlorpyrifos, whether it was um, some of the other federal programs that EPA is pursuing um, on some of the climate stuff, you know, it's not to say that those decisions may not necessarily be right, but they've got to understand that they're going to be held accountable for those decisions. And there are a lot of people that don't exist in some of the big cities that see things differently. And when parties flip and one becomes the majority, uh, 
your comeuppance, they're there, and, and he knew it was coming, and, and you can tell. I mean, the administrator didn't really say anything. He, he said a whole lot of nothing while he was being interviewed, right. and uh, and I completely get it. Um, he knew yeah. it was coming. He probably had his game plan in place, uh, so he did what he needed to do, and for the lawmakers that were there, uh, especially the Republican lawmakers are there, they got their constituents' gripes out and right. made sure that the voices were heard, which is how it works. Exactly. That's how it's yep. supposed to work, right? Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I you think know. you know, I think the show, you know, when you look at the Senate hearings and stuff yeah. like that, where they have their one-on-one meetings and backdoor meetings, and then they go to the show, right? And they ask the question, you hear the answer, you know. Well, as we discussed in our in our previous meeting, and, and so you understand that. Look, these conversations have already been yeah, had. It's, it's taken place, but, but we want to make sure that. The, the crowd now gets to see right. it. And, and that's a bit of the show of, of politics. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, definitely a lot of uh, questions around WOTUS. Um, you know, still a lot of details to come out there. Uh, you, you know, like all of these bills and all of these rules, the devil's in the details. Um, just to kind of close up, uh, uh, Sean, uh, PFOS, another hot topic uh, this 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 round. Uh, anything new there? I, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't talk about PFOS, the, the four-letter word that just keeps on going. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, EPA came out with their drinking water standard. Um, you know, there are still questions about, you know, where we need to be uh, from a definition. There are thousands of these materials. Um, very little is known about the vast majority of them. There are about a half dozen that um, have been determined to, to cause some sort of ill effects. And where they are, it, you know, we're, we're finding them everywhere. We're finding them um, in farmland. I think you saw some instances where they found them in dairy farms up in in Maine. And the legislators up there have, have tried to take action and, and looked into it. We, we've seen them in packaging. Um, and not just ag, but anything. Sure. But, but at the same time, uh, we also got to be very cautious. There was a study that came out that, that, uh, from Texas Tech that found them in pesticides. And it, and it caused a lot of alarm. Mm-hmm. And people went, okay, well, how did it get in there? Did it come from the pesticide itself, the active ingredient? Did it come out from the inert? Uh, did it come from the packaging that it was in? Nobody could point their finger. And so you see everybody, you know, some people saying, well, it's the inerts. We need to know more about the inerts. Some people saying, well, we need to look at the active ingredient. It's definitely there. Others saying, well, it's coming from fluorinated containers. So everybody went back to their own shops and started digging around. Well, what could it possibly be coming from? The interesting thing with that specific study is, EPA pulled those samples into their own lab and they mentioned it in a meeting we had with them and they said, you know, we've actually had to change out our hosing and a lot of our equipment that we're testing. We're doing state-of-the-art PFOS testing, but we've had to move and change out pieces to ensure that the equipment doesn't have PFOS in it. So it doesn't contaminate the results. (laughs) Exactly. And so the interesting thing you find is they tested the samples, the same samples that came out of that study and they didn't find PFOS in it. Okay. So, so many more questions and answers. Uh, there are states that are moving rapidly ahead, um, some faster than others. Uh, uh, Minister Regan, being from North Carolina, which has had its own set of issues with PFOS, um, you know, we, we are moving rapidly. It's a, it's a very uh, concerning issue. We, we get, but we also have to make sure that we make the right decisions um, and, and not get too far ahead of ourselves. Uh, you know, do the science, do the work, but but not scare everybody to the extent that these materials are something that may be different than everything else we've ever really looked at from a, a cleanup standpoint. These things are in everything. And some of the things that they're in, they may be irreplaceable and they may be critical to human health or, or, or technology or what we use. And so um, I think most folks realize that, but 
It is a uh, it is a daily conversation piece that does not just touch ag; it touches everybody. But certainly, ag needs to be aware of it and and make sure that we're looking out for how it has has an impact on us. And, and, and like you mentioned, I mean, education's the key here. I mean, we really need to dig in and better understand that uh, not not just in agriculture, but really uh, as a human race. Oh yeah, Sean. Uh, finally, you know, again, uh, lots of things taking place in D.C. right now, uh, but but it all comes down to the almighty dollar. The debt policy, the ceiling there, you know, how is spending going to impact everything we've talked about on this episode? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's been a while since that debt ceiling was uh, was established and raised at whatever it is, $31.4 trillion or whatever the number is. And and we blew past it in, what, January. I mean, we kind of knew. Right. Uh, I, said we, we, I said earlier we thought we might get to late summer uh, before our, you know, we, we were unable to pay our, our bills. Now it looks like it's June. And so um, I think maybe not in a public sphere, most lawmakers would tell you that, you know, it's going to get raised, um, that we need to pay our obligations, uh, but that doesn't mean that we need to do it irresponsibly. And right. so it will have an impact because there are certain things that are going to get funded. Um, you know, the military, defense, uh, that there are things that, that, that it, are non-negotiable, uh, but what that means is other things are going to have to take a cut. And, I, and I'm always somewhat tickled because you, know, you hear these, these people on TV talk about special interest groups. Right. And I think, well, everybody up there is talking about something that's of interest to them. Everybody's a special interest group. Yep. Um, everybody cares about something that's a priority to them. And so it's, it's not easy to do because when you tell somebody that we're going to cut this and it's your number one or number two priority, that doesn't feel good. Um, but those things are going to happen. It's just a matter of, of how big a cut that's going to be. So I, I think we're, we know that the ceiling will get raised. Yes, there's some extreme folks out there that disagree fundamentally with what we're doing and almost would tell you, burn it down. Let's default. Let's let the country lose their lesson. Right. And while that sounds great, uh, the repercussions, especially on people who can least afford it would be catastrophic. Um, you know, it would be damaging to, to businesses and, and individuals alike and to the ag industry for sure. Um, but generally speaking, the people who get hurt the worst are the people who are already suffering. And so, Cooler heads will prevail and, and something will be agreed upon. But the impact on ag, yeah, I mean, what our farm bill looks like and what some of the, the future endeavors look like, some of the things that we've achieved um, while authorized doesn't mean that they're funded. And that's kind of one of the, the, the dirty little secrets within Congress is, is you can pass whatever legislation you want to and authorize a program, but only certain programs are mandatory funding. Others are discretionary. Right. And so just because it got passed and authorized doesn't mean we have to fund it. That's right. And, and, and it all comes down to the funding. All the hard work on policy and structure comes down to funding. Can we afford it? So Sean McCarty, uh, Director for Helena for Government Affairs, uh, thanks for joining us here today in the uh, FieldLink podcast studio uh, and sharing some of the insight from Washington, some of the things happening on the Hill there uh, in our great nation. No, a good time as always. I appreciate the time. Bet. Thanks for joining us for this special episode of FieldLink. Be sure to download our podcast wherever you get your podcasts or follow us on our social media handles.